0: Hello and welcome back to OT Enchil, all things occupational therapy with me, Quaker. On the episode today, I speak to Jennifer Creek, a well-known and very well-respected occupational therapist who has written countless publications and also spoken at many different conferences. During this episode, we speak about her journey into the profession, what she likes about it, what she doesn't like about it, amongst many, many other things but just before we hear from jennifer i would just like to give a massive shout out to all the occupational therapy podcasters who sponsored me for the disrupt ot summit i really really do appreciate it and really do feel the love from you guys so thank you thank you thank you very much all that sponsorship is just going to go back into this podcast to make it bigger and better so thank you very much from the bottom of my heart now let's hear from jennifer I'm here with the wonderful Jennifer Creek today to just have a a bit of a chat about occupational therapy and everything about it and her passion and uh, her love for the profession and all that she's given already to the profession and I'm sure she's got more to give so welcome Jennifer thank you good good Uh, just to kick the conversation off I was wondering what your OT training was like um when you did it and i don't know how long ago that you did that and then how have you how have you maintained your passion and love for the profession until until now
1: well i started my training in 1967 and at that time the london school of occupational therapy was private i left school when i was 16 so i never got any a levels and i there were 13 ot schools in the UK in the 1960s, and I applied to all of them. Mm. And they all turned me down without an interview because I didn't have A-levels. But none of them was in a university at that time. Some of them belonged to the health service, and some of them were still private. And the London School was being run by the two women who'd started it. We used to call them the aunties. They were Mm. Miss Tarrant and Miss Revette. And they were the only um, school that offered me Uh, an interview so very young very naive I went down to London and I I had this interview and they asked me why I had A-levels and I explained that I come from a very working class family but I was ambitious and I wanted to go to university but of course I didn't have that option so they gave me an IQ test (laughs) can you imagine yeah well as as an alternative to an entrance exam and they offered me a place and many years later, somebody told me that the London School had this policy that every member of staff who was involved in the interviewing could have a lame duck. So I was obviously somebody's lame duck.
0: Wow. <laughs> I, I can't imagine anyone being given an IQ test uh- like now to get to us an entry (laughs) as an entry pathway to study uh, university Um, so how did you find that process did you did you did it not put you off when you obviously because you wanted to go and study it so much did it not put you off that you're having to sit an IQ test or uh,
1: oh I, I had no idea what the procedures were I left school at 16 I'd been working in menial jobs I knew nothing about education I had no idea what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable. Whatever they asked me to do, I would have done it because I just thought that was normal.
0: So so was it more of your passion to go to university or was it more of your passion to study occupational therapy that drove I, I you wanted,
1: on? I wanted to go to university. Uh, but when I was at school, one of my schoolmates, who is Leslie Luffer, she's um, edited textbooks on... Um, occupational therapy for children and adolescents. And she also co-edited one edition of my textbook with me. So I was at school with her and she's the person who introduced me to occupational therapy. And after I'd been working a couple of years in very, very menial jobs, I couldn't bear it. And I was working very long hours. And I thought, well, if I can get a professional job, then I'll be able to take myself to night school and do A-levels and go to university because that's what I really wanted. But my family didn't do university. We weren't that kind of family. So um, I did the occupational therapy training and I I got a job. And as soon as I started work, I started going to night school to get the uh, qualifications that I needed to go to university. And then as time went on, I completely fell in love with occupational therapy and discovered there was nothing else I wanted to do.
0: Well, I think everyone is glad that you you stuck it out, and then you you found your way into it. I'm certainly glad because I I really appreciate all the work that you've put out there, um, and I think you've helped a lot of students uh, through their through their studies um, with your with your thinking. So, thinking about how when you started occupational therapy and what it represented, how do you think is how do you feel about it now?
1: Um. Well, in nine, uh, if you think about it, 1967. The profession only started in the UK in the 1930s, although the first qualified OT um, started work in Scotland in 1925, that was Peg Fulton. She trained in the US Mm. and she she came back and had great difficulty getting a job, but she eventually got a job at the um, Aberdeen Mental Hospital. The first school was started by Elizabeth Casson at Dorset House School in Bristol. And that was in the 1930s. So I started my training only about 30 years Mm. after OT became established in the UK. So we're talking very, very early days. There there was no OT theory. Mm. There were no OT textbooks. The very, very few that there were were mostly written by doctors. The the one we did have was by Elizabeth MacDonald, and we used to call it the Bible. MacDonald's Bible, we used to call it. Um, But there was no OT theory, it was all um, crafts and activity analysis, work-study. We did a lot of, of medical learnings, so we did medicine, surgery, psychiatry, of course we did anatomy, physiology, kinesiology, we had very good grounding in all of that. But occupational therapy, there was no theory. The first OT theories started being developed in the 1960s but in, in America, but they took a while to reach the UK. So Fiddler and Fiddler wrote their book, Occupational Therapy, Communication Process in Psychiatry, in 1963. That was before I started training, but it hadn't reached the UK by then.
0: Suppose it's changed quite a lot. It's, from what it's actually thinking about now, it, the profession is not that old. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of demand on the profession um, to to find its feet, and I don't know if it's found its feet or we comp- we complicate it more than we should complicate it. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, thinking about how it started and maybe not, it didn't have a lot of the theories, but it, it it was working. There must have been something working for it to be uh, for a school to be opened, right? Um, something must have been oh. working then.
1: It did. It did. Because I don't know if you you know the roots of occupational therapy, but it came out of a a number of social movements that were happening around the turn of the century. So there was um, the women's movement was a very important part of OT. People wonder why most OTs are women in in Europe. And it's because it, it was a women's profession. It started as a women's profession. Because in the, in, towards the end of the 19th century, women, for the first time, were getting an education. But they were not allowed to go into the men's professions. And they weren't allowed to take degrees. Sometimes they couldn't even go to university. So they had to find something to do with their education. So all the women's professions started. There was housing management. They were all extensions of the woman's role in the home. They took their domestic skills out into the public sphere. So housing management, physiotherapy, hospital almoners who became social workers, um, occupational therapists, dieticians, nurses, of course, teachers. So these were the women's professions.
0: That's that's really really interesting, and it, again, it's evolved since then, and, and taking a bit of a world view about it. As the profession started in the UK, as you said, in the in the twenties, uh, um, as such. It
1: had started in the in the US in 1917. US. The first occupational therapy association
0: yeah so so taking it worldwide now i know this is in a number of countries all across the world isn't it and and it's looked upon differently everywhere you go yes Um, uh, and i wonder sometimes when i look look around and read bits and pieces it appears that some countries are doing what you'd call the OT that you might have been doing when you first started, and 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 maybe in the UK or the US, we, we're trying to shift, <laughs> shift in, and and mould ourselves in, to fit into the health systems that are designed here. Is yeah. there is is there right or wrong <laughs> in in, in Eva?
1: Well, one of the things that I that, that you know it, it I've never stopped being passionate about OT. It's endlessly fascinating, and I think it's partly because it is still such a young profession. And and there's still such a lot to be done so that I remain very, very interested in in trying to get OT properly established. But I was saying it came out of various social movements and it wasn't just the women's movement. It was housing reform and um, a settlement house movement. So occupational therapy, right at the beginning, came out of movements to make things better for poor people. Even Elizabeth Casson, who who started Dorset House, she was a housing manager for um, Octavia Hill in London.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah,
1: so she was working to help poor people. And Elizabeth Casson realised that giving people good clean housing wasn't enough. A lot of them had mental health problems. So she trained as a psychiatrist. She was one of the first women to um, get a medical qualification and then go on and train as a psychiatrist and she opened her own psychiatric clinic for women at dorset house in bristol but she'd come across occupational therapy and decided to start her own ot school at dorset house in bristol
0: the profession already has a quite a rich history just from what you talked about and about and how we can come out and do things through social movements and especially in the world that we're living in now there's a lot of changes happening quite quickly yeah and I, and I wonder what the next movement is for <laughs> occupational therapy to sort of jump on because things like poverty haven't gone away but I don't know if we choose to ignore that a lot uh things like equal equal rights uh <laughs> yeah. haven't gone away but I don't know if yeah. again we choose to <laughs> I- ignore that so I don't I just I'm trying to figure out in my head where, where it fits and if other countries, even though they're doing a lot of the things that, especially the UK and the US might think is really old school. I wonder if they still, they're the ones on the right path and we're just still trying to toggle with it. Hey. Well,
1: what, what I was trying to, to come to is that right from the beginning, occupational therapies have this strong strand of social reform there's even marxist roots to occupational therapy although mostly we're in very strong denial about that Um, but the type of thinking that ot's used was pragmatist thinking you know pragmatism is an american school of philosophy that started in two universities but there was a big hub at the university of chicago and one of the first well, the first settlement house in the in the United States was also in Chicago, Hull House, and that is where the first occupational therapy program started. Mm. So the people who started the first occupational therapy program worked with the pragmatist philosophers like William James, and I've forgotten the names. I've re- I've got to the age where uh, I just don't remember names very easily. So. So there's this one very, very strong strand in occupational therapy. And that, I think, is what OTs, mostly in the Southern Hemisphere, are picking up. So occupational therapists in South Africa are doing the most stunning work. And in South America as well, Mm. real social occupational therapy. In South South America, they call it the social field, don't they? Mm. Occupational therapy in the social field, that's the term they use. But what happened was... The American Occupational Therapy Association, the first one, the National Society for the Promotion of Occupational Therapy, started in 1917 when the first, just at the time when America joined in the First World War. And the occupational therapists in the US and Canada allied themselves with the army in order to get funding. Yeah, and in fact, a lot of the OT schools. In America were funded by the Army. They were started by the Army. So the First and Second World Wars gave a huge boost to occupational therapy in, in both the UK and North America. But the cost of that was that OT became medicalized. So we had this very, very strong social reform pragmatist philosophy. And alongside it, we took on a biomedical epistemology and a very strong biomedical perspective. And some people talk about that being in conflict, but I don't see it as a conflict. I see that that is one of our strongest pragmatism and this passion for social justice. And we have biomedical knowledge and understanding. And when we use them together, then i think that's what makes us so effective and so powerful
0: mm, that's that's a very good, fantastic way to look at it but i suppose that you not know, a lot of people probably see it like as that because we're still struggling or well, some people still struggle with that uh, trying to get their head around uh, around the identity of an occupational therapist so on that point of an identity of an occupational therapist i know you you have a strong interest in Mental health, occupational therapy and and mental health. Um I wonder where that sort of passion came from. Um, firstly, and also what is the unique uh position of occupational therapy when working with those experiencing mental health um, or mental illness?
1: Oh, I don't use the word unique, but it's irrelevant. Okay. (laughs) Unique means there's only one. There's there's millions of people working in the field of mental health. Nobody can claim unique.
0: So what can we offer that's different to the other many people working in the in the profession in, 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 the, in that field sorry
1: It is what I said that we have an understanding of psychiatry, of mental health, of psychology. We, we have a grounding in sociology. so we we have a grounding in the medical and and social sciences. So we have that understanding. but what we bring is this pragmatism which i think a lot of um, other professions don't have and certainly don't value and i think that is part of the problem for occupational therapists that that we we look well yeah people say it they say it's just common sense but how many other people have common sense <laughs> and i like to think of it as common sense elevated to an art form yeah a therapist can make things happen and nobody knows how they happened It just looks like it happened on its own. When you're really, really skilled, when you really know what you're doing, you get people to to do things and they thought they did it for themselves. They thought it was what they wanted to do. It's so pragmatic. It's so down to earth. It's so skillful. I think it's one of the most skillful um, professions because it involves so much. It involves Working on so many different levels. I think even most occupational therapists, you have to have a lot of experience to, to become really, really skillful. I'm not saying that young OTs starting out aren't good. I know some totally brilliant ones, but it doesn't come as easy to them when you've got a lot of experience. It, you make it look easy,
0: and that's the combination of both, uh, let's say, professional experience, actually, actually doing the job right, and and uh, and a life experience as well, right? Because I can imagine like, when people bring life experience, they've been through different scenarios in their life. They got different they can see different pictures, um, and then when you combine that with the knowledge that you've gained from studying, uh, you can sort of hone in that, those skills and work with work with people as well as you can.
1: And to me, it's about being open because you don't learn unless you're open to learning, do you? So even young OTs, you see some very different attitudes. Some of the young therapists that I know, they're so open, they're so willing to learn, and and they don't um, come with big preconceptions and think they know what to do. And I think that's the secret, really. It's, It's being confident enough to come in and just let things unfold the best occupational therapists I've ever worked with or ever seen working are the ones who just are so laid back and let it happen and, and tweak here and there and, and just, and even young therapists can do that, but it does take quite a lot of confidence because when you work in settings like hospitals, everybody's leaning on you to make it look technical and make it look difficult and make it sound terribly complicated Um and, and to to be, to have the confidence to just let it unfold and let it flow and let things happen. I think, I think it can be quite challenging.
0: No, I, I, definitely. I think what happens is that as well, maybe some people might come into the profession uh, at a young age or whatever age, and then you've, you have this sort of openness about you and willingness to learn. But I can just imagine when you get into different settings, especially settings that are quite bureaucratic mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in their nature, you get bogged down in doing things that you don't maybe particularly align with your values or the values of the of the profession. Uh, anyway, being that using that pragmatic um, influence, yes. you, 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 you get stuck in this. Process this linear process that I have to do this before then I move on to this one before then I move on to this one rather than just letting things happen as that, they happen. That's
1: not occupational therapy, it really isn't. No, no, first no. you do this and then you do that. That's not occupational therapy, not the way I understand it.
0: No, no, I don't, no, the way I
1: survive. Sorry.
0: No, I was absolutely. I'm just saying when you get into sometimes when people get stuck in the systems because we, we work yeah. in a lot of systems. That's what what happens because you get trapped in the system that you can't get out of because as soon as you yeah. try shift, someone pushes you back into place because it's so yeah.
1: bureaucratic. No wonder we have an identity problem.
0: <laughs> that's the whole conversation <laughs> by itself. So. Okay, well, the, the
1: way I the way I survived because when I started out the NHS hospitals were still run by a doctor, a nurse and an administrator. And I can remember when general management came in and, and I can remember the successive so-called reforms and the marketization of the health service, the internal market, all this stuff. I was there. I lived through all of it alongside all the all the developments in, in medication and different treatments and more effective treatments i also lived alongside I lived through the successive reorganizations and it got much more difficult mm. once the nhs became managerialized because then instead of being able to talk to the doctor or the hospital matron about about what you were doing the, the managers had no interest in the clinical side they just told you what your targets were this is what you have to do so it became much more constricted what we were able to do. And I I, um, survived for many years by switching between clinical and teaching. So I'd I'd take a university job for three or four years and then go back into clinical work for a few years. And that way I managed to avoid getting burnout. But uh, about 22 years ago, I reached the end of the road and I said, I just, I just can't work in the system anymore. And I went freelance
0: yeah i think i think it's probably not talked about enough actually uh, uh the, the idea of burnout and be, uh, especially these days because you know we've been a very much a well i think we are in a very much a capitalist um uh era and <laughs> now neoliberal that, it's, ne- it's, neoliberal it's
1: hardline capitalism
0: yeah yeah so it's you have to just work 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 and um, you have to show that you can do this you have to be just basically uh, be professional all the time and all this kind of stuff. And
1: now I don't think that that we are working as professionals within the health service because to me a professional is somebody who has the autonomy to make their own clinical decisions. And if you're working in a system that that uh, manages the process of what you do, you've lost that autonomy. So OTs have very little space in which to make their own decisions about what to do. Mm.
0: That leads me on to one of the areas of interest to me, and um, I know that it's, it's, it's to you as well. But it's working with those on the margins, or working in areas of people experiencing marginalisation. Um, mm-hmm. I say, like me, since I came out of university, I just there's something inside me. Just I don't know. I, even though I, even though I work in the system, and that's that's absolutely fine, like to me, but I just never wanted to work in. Just, just the normal system, if it, if it makes sense, the usual system. I wanted to work with people yes, on, the, on uh, the outside of it. Where did your interest in working with in, in the margins come from?
1: In I can't remember which year it was. It must have been about 1989. The Royal College, sorry, it was the College of Occupational Therapists in those days had commissioned a, a commission of inquiry into occupational therapy. And the report was published. I can't remember if it was 1979 or 1989. Yeah, it was 1979, was it? I can't remember, probably 89. Anyway, Blom Cooper said in this report, they said that occupational therapists shouldn't be working in hospitals, they should be working in the community. And at that time I was working in a hospital psychiatric unit and I was aware that by the time I got to see people when they were admitted to hospital, they'd already had years on medication um, prescribed by the GP. They'd been referred to a psychiatrist to try and sort out the mess the medication was in. They were usually admitted to hospital for detox and try and get the medication sorted out. And, and there might be 10, 15 years into their illness career by this stage. And I thought, what if I did what Blom Cooper said? And got down to the GP practice and was seeing people the first time they come to the GP. So I contacted the biggest local GP practice and I said, can I offer you um, an occupational therapy clinic? Well, they'd never heard of occupational therapy, but they invited me to go down and talk to them. And I said, uh, at this time, there was a big problem with women having tranquilizer dependency. GPs were were, um, prescribing lots of Valium and Librium. And a lot of women had long-term tranquilizer dependency. So I said to the GPs, I'll see all all the women between the ages of 20 and 60 who've got tranquilizer dependency, long-term depression, empty nest syndrome, anxiety. Well, the GPs thought all their Christmases had arrived at once, you know, (laughs) because these are the people who really gave them trouble. (laughs) So I used to trot down there one afternoon a week and and do a clinic but because I was so inexperienced um, I just took the hospital with me really I was just working as though I was in the hospital anyway after I went freelance this was yeah 20 odd years ago I got another chance to work in a GP practice and this was two days a week and this was a in a very very poor area on a housing estate a very deprived area in the northeast of England and I did it differently this time because I had had a lot more experience and I was a lot more confident so instead of sitting in the uh, GP practice having people referred to me for anxiety or whatever I went out into the community and I visited all the local community organisations and I told them what I could do. And they started saying, oh, can you come and work with us? So I started working based in the GP practice, but working in the local community centre, in the local schools. Um, it was only two days a week, so I had to limit what I did. But I was working in the old people's homes and it was um, that was when I got into um mental health promotion and prevention rather than remediation and I got fascinated and these people lived such difficult lives they were really on the edge poverty high levels of crime stressful lives and it was just inspiring working with them and they thought I was they were right you know they thought I was completely naive so they used to look after me they used to keep me safe because it was a pretty dangerous area. You know, they, they were looking after me. I was one of theirs.
0: Wow, so <laughs> It was uh, amazing. Uh, recently, when I've been speaking to people on the podcast, everyone talks about the concept of, or not even the concept, it's not even the concept is that the working in the community as being where OTs belong. A, a, a lot of people have said that. Yes. Um, and, yes. and and I, I and even when I am speaking to, uh, I think it's definitely about occupational therapy in prisons and also in Scotland. And she was talking about occupational therapists having to or should be taking like a more of a public health approach um, and when you take that public health approach yes and you, you're based in the community yes. you're not restricted to yes physical health or just mental health. you're working with the person because the person will come with anything okay? <laughs> and you we know the impact of uh poverty can have on people m- a massive massive impact of poverty can have on people because it drives yeah. you to do things that you might not particularly want to do uh, uh mm. and uh, you know you, you, you know and it talks about even eating down to eating if you don't have money to buy good food then obviously if you don't eat well then that's going to have mm. an impact mm-hmm. on your well-being so everyone's been talking about then and, and I, I i think i really do believe now or <laughs> from talking to people that community is the place that we should really try to go for but at the same time i know that especially in the uk anyway um we again like i said before, we, we work in systems i think we can get we can again get restricted in working in in systems, um, which will make it difficult to do the things that we want to do in the community. Reading some of the stuff that you've written before about working with those on the margins. uh, I think you talk about how those working on the margins are a little bit more freer um, and a little bit more. um, What's the word that you used Uh, at at the edge of creativity and innovation? (laughs) It takes a different type of person and skills to work there.
1: You've got more autonomy, so you have to have the confidence to make your own decisions if you work in marginal settings. One thing I would say is I bet you see the margins where you're working because they exist within systems, not just outside them. And you can take a public health approach within systems. The problem is that the system will constrain you and try to stop you doing that but it is possible. Mm. So I'm not saying that you can't do good OT within systems, I'm just saying it's harder. Yes. Because because the system won't, that's not what they want, they've got their own views about what they want you to do. But I think, yeah, when working in South Africa has absolutely inspired me over years and years, the South African occupational therapists, they don't just do amazing stuff, but they theorise about it. And that's what's lacking, really. We need to theorise this work on the margins so that we understand it. Occupational therapy in general is desperately under-theorised. It tends to be very procedural rather than having structures for thinking about what we're doing. We tend to follow procedures, which isn't, um, again, I don't see that as being occupational therapy. But in South Africa, I started going there, I think in the 1990s and the OTs, they were faced with the AIDS epidemic and they were faced with entrenched rural rural poverty. And they were faced with just coming out of apartheid and and trying to deal with the horrors uh, of what had been going on and and the desperate inequality and social injustice. wouldn't you think that that would just overwhelm them and they'd retreat to the clinics and just treat the nice little broken legs and it would all be okay. But no, they, they got out there and they dealt with these big issues. They, they found ways of dealing with, with HIV AIDS. They, they deal with rural poverty. They deal with inequality. It's, it's fantastic. And then they write about it. <laughs> They're yeah. wonderful and i believe the same thing is happening in south america but unfortunately because i only speak english i don't have access to their literature
0: yeah that's that's a whole a conversation about how we can have a, a, a us occupational therapists in the uk and the us how we can have more of a um, a global view on, on on occupation and occupational therapy because i think I think gaining that global view, having that understanding of places like south america and and um and south Africa will can really help us here in the in the western um countries i think or the northern hemisphere because I think sometimes we we get trapped in this we are wonderful we've got loads of theory we can our our system works, but actually we can do a lot of learning from places like south it Africa and, and and south yeah. america totally. So this is, uh, this
1: is where I get my inspiration from.
0: You're talking about the theorising, the work that we do. How do how does one or how can one go about doing that? Is there is there a way of doing it, or is it is it does it take a certain type of person to do it, or can we all do it?
1: Oh, I think well, part of the problem is that um, most of the textbooks, occupational therapy textbooks are a bit didactic, they're not particularly thoughtful and theoretical really, they're a bit like um, sixth form textbooks aren't they, <laughs> rather, than, rather than encouraging thought, don't get me going on that. <laughs> a few, well let's see, about six, 16 or 18 years ago I got invited to join the terminology group of the European Network of Occupational Therapy in Higher Education, because I I did my first research degree on occupational therapy language. So I have a very long-term interest in the language of occupational therapy. So I was invited to join this group and they were trying to harmonize occupational therapy language across the whole of Europe. And some people thought it was a bit of a joke because in English, we can't even agree on the meaning of key concepts. So they said how can you possibly do it across every european language so we spent six years there were six of us six different countries six languages and we spent six years and we produced a theory of of occupation now it hasn't been widely used people who understand it like it a lot but It hasn't been widely used because it is just that, it's a theory of occupation. It explains what occupation is and OTs uh, have been taught this is what you do. This is how you do it. So they don't know how to use a theory. So we've got back together again, the original group, and we're now working on the next stage of theory development. Mm. and and it's very exciting. I think the Canadians have done quite a bit of theory development but their stuff, oh should I say it, I think it's quite old-fashioned now. I think all occupational therapy theory is a bit old-fashioned, it's a bit last century and we we really haven't done the work to update it and, and bring in broader intellectual ideas. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting. It's interesting. I think, like I said right at the beginning, I think the world has changed so much. Um, well, even since I, like the turn of the century, um, it, even in the last five years, it's changed so much. And I, and I don't know if we're keeping up with it. Um, but I don't know. if yeah. the, I don't know if the motivation is there. There must be. I don't know. It, it must be there. Um, personally, because I found this area of of. Um, of work that I really enjoy, I'm thinking about writing about it, this area, but I don't know if everyone else working in the areas that they are, are thinking about, writing about and thinking different ways of how we can get occupational therapy really going it, 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 in, and being understood uh, by different people, not just occupational therapists, because most of the time when we speak to other occupational therapists, they understand us, but it's when we speak to people that are not occupational therapists, that's when we sort of hit brick wall.
1: Well, i think the problem is we're not very articulate are we If you say we understand each other but nobody else understands us that means that we're not we're not speaking clearly we're not articulating and i think it's because we're fuzzy we don't think clearly we understand each other but not not on a linguistic plane we we connect with our hearts rather than with our heads and i'm afraid that's not good enough
0: mm-hmm. I don't know if because obviously we, when we we when you come to profession you want to work with people all the time you want to be with people right so I think maybe when you're talking about the connect, not connecting with our heads that that gets lost because we want to be there with the people and working with them and helping them get to a to b but we actually need to be connecting with our heads in order to move the profession on a bit and get people to understand it and people to really invest in it um, and the people to appreciate it
1: even to work more effectively our clients that you know it's it's one thing to be very nice people but don't you think they'd also like us to know what we're doing
0: oh of course <laughs> of course they want to they want to they want to trust in us and in our knowledge and our understanding of what we're actually doing before we before we do it <laughs> so going back to the working on the mark working on the margins I know you've traveled the world a lot you've traveled the world uh, you know seeing yeah. all different types of occupational therapy um what has been the most if you can recall what has been yes. the most fascinating place or uh that you've visited and you thought wow these people are doing apart from South Africa that like you've talked about anywhere else that you're doing amazing what you would um uh, agree to be occupational therapy
1: it's it's surprising you can find it everywhere you can find it in this country but several for about five years i I travel a lot with kit sinclair who lives in hong kong we met when we were both working there and we're we're great friends and we we travel a lot together studying occupational therapy and um for about five years we went to the philippines every year to do some teaching and also to work with the ots doing disaster preparedness and response and what they've done is astonishing They were the first occupational therapy association in the world to have their own disaster preparedness and response strategy. And they have um, a group, a subcommittee, and they are first responders because the Philippines is one of the most disaster-prone countries in the world. And now when a typhoon hits or there's an earthquake, the occupational therapists go out and respond as volunteers. And we went we've been out with them to various to visit various disasters. And what they're doing is just fantastic. It's real core occupational therapy, helping to people to rebuild their lives following disaster. Mm. Wonderful.
0: Mm. I remember but the
1: other place which is surprising. Sorry, go on.
0: No, sorry, because I said I remember speaking to uh Kate Sinclair, or oh, not speaking to her, but I had we had a presentation from her when I was at university, and she's talking about this very um, work that uh-huh. you, you guys did, and it, it was just fascinating. Just thinking, ah, can, can, right. can, can OTs be in this place when something so disastrous has happened? And I was just like, well, why would we? Why are we need it there? But yeah. actually, we are <laughs> from, what, from what she talked about. Actually, we, we are. We certainly are.
1: Yeah, and the the other place which really surprised me was, and it was a bit grim because I don't really um, like a lot of the way that health services are running in the United States. Um, Very unequal. It's great if you're rich, but it's not so great if you're homeless. So I I was getting quite wound up by a lot of what we saw. But then Kit had asked if we could, if people would... Um, take us t- to see any marginal projects that were going on. And of course they are going on, but people are not paid to do it. But a lot of occupational therapists in the States are doing this on a voluntary basis. So outside their paid job, they go and do voluntary work and they do the most astonishing things. And it's it's pure OT, it's, it's social reform, it's social justice, it's fantastic. So for example... Oh, yeah. We went to visit an emergency night shelter. There's a lot of homeless people in the States and it's getting worse. And we got taken to visit this emergency shelter, which I think has 90 beds. So people who haven't got anywhere to sleep can turn up there and it's first come first served. So but even if they can't go to bed for the night, they'll give them a hot meal and they can have a shower and they can wash their clothes. So this is very nice. But now they've got an OT there and they take OT students. So when these people coming off the streets and they have their meal and they have their shower and they get washed and clean, the OTs try to engage them. They don't organise anything. They don't come in with a biomedical perspective. They just try to engage them. They might sit and play cards with them or get them to join in doing a jigsaw and start talking and start getting a sense of what are the issues? Why are you on the streets? What what needs to be done to help you to move from being on the streets to getting um, a home and a job and all that stuff. And it was just fantastic. It was It was some of the best OT that I've seen for a long time because it was that very pragmatic, very gentle, very responsive OT not taking control
0: one of the things that I really enjoy about that pure OT that you just sort of described this I love using that in my work now because when I meet some of the young men mm. we're trying to find out from them some real like uh difficulties that they've experienced in their development um growing mm. up and things like that so no one's gonna I'm not gonna ask them outright <laughs> what happened to you and why are you here that's it's not going to get me any results basically or we're Mm. not going to get to where we are so that's some of that gentle pure OT and that's what kind of I've I've been trying to encourage some of my colleagues who are not OTs to sort of bring into into the room so it's like a two-tier level so I'm doing my actual OT work and then Mm. I'm encouraging my colleagues to bring that in to support them to get the to get to where they want to and I think I don't know some some people might not appreciate that uh, in in terms of like other professions they might be looking at us thinking you're doing all the fun stuff like you said <laughs> you're, you're playing cards with someone but no we're not we're trying to engage the person <laughs> we're trying to engage yes. a person to get them yes. from here to, to there and that's where sometimes i think i think you mentioned it before sometimes we maybe we're not able to articulate uh, um exactly what we're doing when we're trying to engage someone that's coming to a shelter and and just basically wants their hot meal um, and, and then leave it but actually we're trying to help them think about what they need in order to get to where they want to get to right
1: yes but without frightening them off of course because if, if that was one thing I learned working in primary care that was the first thing I learned that if, if you frighten people you'll never see them again they're not a captive audience like in hospital. So if you don't give people what they want, if you don't treat them with respect, you won't ever see them again. They won't keep the next appointment. Mm -hmm. So if you're working with homeless people or people who are very traumatized or people who don't trust the system, then you have to be very gentle Mm -hmm. and you have to leave the power with them. Let them make the pace, not Mm -hmm. not force them or try to push them.
0: So, so there's a lot of it's a lot to think about when you're in there a, and then i keep i keep going back to uh my mind keeps going back to that but in the system and then how difficult it is for some people to prove themselves um that they're actually doing what ot is by not making it by, by making it look complicated like you said before people, maybe which has over complicated by yeah. do, by doing extensive we extensive do, do. assessments you know just to prove that we're actually <sighs> terrible. doing something.
1: terrible terrible Gosh. I just think that's awful. It's a waste of your time. And it, most importantly, it's a waste of your client's time. Mm-hmm.
0: So in, in your in your mind, how can we, I know you've done a lot of writing so people can go and read it <laughs> again, but if you could sort of summarise it, how can we uh, articulate, articulate what we do in the most simplest terms to people so that we, it, it can be effective and you know, people can buy into it quickly?
1: I don't think they can because people don't want to. Um, People are very familiar with the biomedical discourse. And that's what I think why OTs try to use it. Because if we make ourselves sound medical, then everybody knows what we're all about. I don't think there is an easy, quick way to make common sense sound impressive and sexy. It doesn't. I think that we just have to not mind people being ignorant about what we do and just carry on doing it. Because after all, it's effective. We, we've not just survived the last 100 years as a profession. We're still growing. We're still expanding into new countries. I think it's we've just got to stop whining about it. Yeah. yeah. In, when I worked in the second GP practice and I used to do crafts with groups of women and I'd be wandering around with silk flowers or whatever we happened to be making and the, the nursing staff used to look at, askance at me and I would say, look, I earn the same as you do and I'm having more fun <laughs> we don't wish to be defensive about what we do
0: yeah I think that's what it is I think yeah people get bit, yeah I can imagine when you're doing something that you, it might be perceived as you're know, just having fun just understanding that to yourself that you're doing this for a reason and this reason in your mind in your reasoning is that I'm trying to get this person to well for start to build a relationship with this person so that they can trust me enough for me to make suggestions that they might be able to take on board or they make suggestions that we might be able to work together to achieve whatever, whatever the goal is that they, they want to achieve I suppose it's not about, I'll, I'll, I've got, I've come up with these things that it's not about me, the, the work that I'm doing is not about me because if it was about me then I wouldn't be doing that type of work i will be doing something that pays me <laughs> a <Exactly>. lot more <laughs> so it's not mm. really about me, it's about the person that is sitting in front of me um, and what can I do with this person mm. to help mm. them figure out uh, what they want to mm. do in order to actually do it, if it mm. makes sense.
1: Mm. There's, there's a Norwegian occupational therapist, Catherine Arntzen. She wrote a fantastic paper on embodied intersubjective professional reasoning. And uh, she she works in stroke rehabilitation. And her observations, her research led her to notice that the clinical reasoning and the decisions don't happen in the therapist's head. Neither did they happen in the client's head. They happen in the space between them. And the reasoning is embodied. It doesn't necessarily happen in language. And interestingly, Cheryl Mattingly, the, the anthropologist who did the clinical reasoning study in the US, she said the same thing, that so much of your reasoning is embodied. If it, Particularly, the more experienced you are, the more it's embodied. And Mattingly said that when she first walked into an occupational therapy department, she saw the client's bodies and therapists' bodies interacting. And, and so much of what was happening was in that interaction. So embodied intersubjective professional reasoning. It's, um, it's a wonderful concept. So next time somebody thinks you're doing nothing, think about the complexity of what's taking place between you and your client and how much skill it takes to do that really well.
0: Mm. I've, I'd never heard of that, but it makes so much more sense uh, to me now because I, I think about someone when, even before I was an occupational therapist and um, when I was working in uh, like a learning di- disabilities um, unit and also a mental health rehab unit, sometimes the people we're working with find it very, very difficult to engage in anything it's very difficult but it takes a lot of skill on on Mm -hmm. my my part and obviously that a, a, a trust on their part than to meet in the middle and encourage them to do whatever it is that that you know, we normally yes. talk about um we talk about meaningful <laughs> occupations and occupations and activities where, whichever one it is but you get them to do what they want to do to help them on the way to get to where they want to get to or develop mm. a new skill so that what you just said that makes a lot of sense and I wonder if, uh, if other people like that might be listening I, I, I've heard of it because I uh, it's not something that I've come across but it just it just sits right. so <laughs> And now so when I am sitting there talking to my young men I'll be like well i'm really struggling here but it's not just me because he's probably struggling as well but we're going to meet somewhere in the middle
1: (laughs) you've got it you've got it yes absolutely and and after all the point of playing cards with with somebody is not the game of cards is it it's like when you make a cup of tea with the client the point of it is not the cup of tea we're building people we're helping people to build themselves we're not making cups of tea or playing cards that's just the medium the vehicle for achieving what we're trying to achieve
0: mm, mm, amazing amazing Jennifer, you're so knowledgeable <laughs> i could sit here and talk to you or oh, or oh, or oh, night um and yeah you... oh
1: that's been long enough <laughs>
0: <laughs> um just just to finish off quickly um I wonder uh, uh, what what kind of projects if you don't mind what have you got going on now what kind what's what's your new thinking <laughs> now because I'm sure you've come up with new every year it seems like something new and fantastic comes up in your in your mind um, what what's your thinking right now.
1: I just I just have to say that all my work is collaborative nothing happens in my head it's all be, it's all intersubjective all my work is collaborative with groups of people and at the moment <laughs> I'm working with a wonderful group international group of people on a new book and we're trying to theorize occupational therapy practice on the margins and we're using social practice theory as our uh, organizing theory so it's very challenging and very exciting
0: ah uh, well I can't wait to read that book because I I heard you speak at the OT show in um I think it's 2019 about the social practice theory and how occupational therapists should start That's thinking right. to yeah. start thinking about it so I can't I can't wait to 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 read it um don't, no rush don't don't no rush to finish it but just hurry up so I can read <laughs> it <laughs> um uh, thank you so much for, for your time uh, I really do appreciate it and I, I really do hope that people are listening thank you for
1: inviting me
0: yeah no it's it's been fantastic talking to you thank you so much again Jennifer for taking the time out to come and speak to me I really learned a lot from you I really enjoyed that conversation I hope everyone listening I also enjoyed it thank you very much for taking the time to listen guys and remember if you like the podcast then jump onto apple podcasts and leave me a rating and also share with your colleagues friends or anyone that might be interested in listening to ot and chill until next time guys stay safe